The 360 on Energy and Carbon, hosted by 360 Energy. Today we are joined by guest Richard Adamson. Richard is CEO of Industrial Climate Solutions, overseeing the development and commercialization of products based on the Pulse Enhanced Froth technology. This platform technology intensifies processes, reduces costs, and eliminates many constraints in gas or liquid contacting in industrial applications, ranging from CO2 capture and conversion to fertilization production to flue gas scrubbing in stationary and marine applications. On February 1st, 2022, ICS was acquired by Baker Hughes Turbo Machinery Process Solutions. Richard has four decades of experience in the development, commercialization, and marketing of commercial and industrial process equipment, technologies, and business models. He was the founding president of Carbon Management Canada, a network of centers of excellence, and CMC research institutes. Before that, with Southern Research Institute in Durham, North Carolina, he helped establish the Carbon to Liquids Development Center. Now let's get into the episode with Richard. Welcome back, Dave, John, and Richard. Good to be back. Great to be here. And as you can see, John's still in Canada, so... Still in the same room. Still the same. <laughs> I think this is our last episode with both of you in the same room, so we have to yes, save for is. this one. It is. That it very is. Very much so. Well, I'm really excited about today's episode. We'll be talking about industry implementation of carbon capture, utilization, and storage. Dave, I'll pass this on to you to kick us off. Okay, thank you, Lysandra. And, and Richard, again, thank you for, for being our guests here. I think I wanted to pick up on something that I touched upon, well, you actually initiated this, is to discuss how this whole technology and the utilization of carbon, how that can be used or being productive or helpful in this for companies or industries. Yeah, so there's, there's a couple of reasons why it's important, but and a couple of reasons why we need to maybe clarify the role of utilization. So we were talking before about carbon capture and storage, where we're primarily geological sequestration, deep geological sequestration, and the scale of those plants can be very large, and we can build them out with for huge impact rapidly. The challenge with utilization is, first off, you, you're converting, you capture the CO2, and you convert it into something, something that's got an economic market generally. So you have to be able to then sell it. And usually there's something else out there in the market that you're competing against. And so you, it takes time to drive, you know, gain market share. So there's kind of a time constant involved with being able to penetrate the market on it. And there's also very, very few things that for example, as a comparison on a CCS plant, there's very few products that you would use a million tons a year of CO2 to produce without basically swamping the global market. So there's the there's a tendency to say, great, why don't we just make, I actually saw this example, we can convert CO2 to omega-3 fatty acids at $20,000 a ton. Well, the economics are great, but how many gigatons of omega-3 fatty acids does the world market require? The, there's a there's kind of a trade-off there. So I, I'm a really big booster of, of carbon utilization. I think it's got a role to play. The economics are so much better for that than storage. Therefore, we should quit storage because the scale is just not there and the rate of the rate of penetration is not there. That's not a reason not to do it. 
but that's a reason not to say that's the solution. So there's a few questions there. There's some products that have a high economic value. So things like carbon nanofibers and and exotic materials and things like that, that people are, are focusing on. And those have got good economics, not massive volume, but good economics. And there's also a, a significant amount of effort to increase the market size for those by uh, folding those kind of products into, for example, fillers for plastic injection, fillers for cement or concrete production and those kinds of things. That's great. On the other end, you've got things that you actually need a lot of volume of. As an example, there's one group that I'm aware of that takes concrete rubble, leaches the old cement out of the concrete rubble, recycles the aggregate, puts it back on the market, but then they react their their solution from the the cement with flue gas and make a synthetic limestone aggregate. So they make they make aggregate, they recycle aggregate, and they make money out of reducing tipping fees, basically tipping fees for dumping the concrete rubble that they're recycling in in this process. So it's a win-win all the way around and their economics actually make sense because in California they import their aggregate from British Columbia and Mexico and you, you don't just have a hill in your backyard you can dig aggregate out of which in Alberta we have so the market model may not work as well here but so there's there's a range of different types some that are very high volume generally a lower dollar value and some that are smaller volume and higher dollar value and there's a lot of exploration going on. How big a role can these play? Important, interesting, but not instead of carbon storage. Got it. So if I could, because you're, you're going down this pathway then. So which industries are, are more likely to, to implement the CCUS? Well, yeah. So there's a couple of drivers. There's, there's industries that have large emission volumes that are a concern. And there's industries that are highly motivated to eliminate emissions for marketing reasons or ESG reasons or whatever, as, as opposed to simply the carbon taxes or fees or whatever they're facing, penalties. The easiest place to do carbon capture and storage has the highest concentration of CO2 in the flue gas. In fact, the, at the limit of that is, for example, bioethanol plants, because the process of producing bioethanol produces nearly pure CO2. So your capture process is almost done for you. So that those plants will be really no brainers because the cost of capture is very low. The cost of capture is very tightly tied to the concentration of the CO2. If you have say a, a hydrogen plant where you're making blue hydrogen, converting natural gas to hydrogen, you might be dealing with 20% or higher CO2 concentrations. It's a lot easier to capture CO2 out of that than say out of the atmosphere, which is 400 parts per million. And that's, so looking at the, the concentration of CO2, that's one factor. The other is how much other stuff is in the flue gas. So coal-fired, capture off coal-fired power plants is, is challenging. It's, uh, the CO2 concentration is about 12%, not bad, but you've got a lot of ash and particulate and sulfur and maybe mercury and and so you've got to do a whole bunch of cleanup before you get to the CO2. The good news is if you're committed to doing CO2 capture off the back end of a coal plant, 
your emissions are really good off the back end of it because you've had to clean absolutely everything out of it before you could get to the CO2. But on the other hand, it makes the amount of upfront work higher. Then you worked your way down the, the scale towards, say, natural gas combined cycle power generating station, 4%, 5% CO2. That's harder. If you think about it, you now have to deal with comparing against that 20% CO2 range. You now have to move five times as much gas through your capture plant per ton of CO2 captured. So the size of your front end equipment goes up. The size of your blowers and fans goes up. Your The amount of electrical load penalty for all of that. All of that drives things up. So the lower your concentration, the more of that. So that makes it more challenging. On the other hand, the flue gas is really clean. You don't have any of that other nonsense to deal with the, that you do at the coal-fired power plant. So there's all kinds of interesting work on how do you address that problem as you move down. So really, that that's that spectrum of concentration is really important. Direct air capture being the extreme hard choice. At 400 parts per million, you now have to have 100 times as much gas as you would from a, from a natural gas combined cycle plant for a ton of CO2. So that's a really hard problem to deal with. So that's, that's one set. And then as we were talking before, what do you do with the CO2? So if you've got, if you've got plants that are at, at the shoreline in Europe, where a lot of the carbon storage is marine transport to get to the carbon storage from the Northern Lights project out of Norway, for example, now there's cement plants all around around the shorelines that are looking at carbon capture because they can now dump the CO2 into a ship and transport it off for, for injection offshore from Norway. Or they've got the option they can move down to the Netherlands or the UK and participate in different carbon storage systems that way. So physical location is another factor to take into account. Okay, I'm going to ask another one of those simple questions that's probably not got a simple answer. There would seem to be a, shall we say, a minimum viable size for a, a plant to have its own carbon capture and storage. Can you give us any sort of guidance on what that might be so that helps us think about which particular sites might be best for it? Well, again, the policies and regulatory, it makes location really important. Okay. And you said carbon capture and storage. So yes, I was particularly uh, looking at the storage one. Yeah. Well, so if you're located right on top of a good geological injection site and your business encompasses all of the right things. So an oil and gas company or, or a, a company that involves oil and gas and refining and et cetera, et cetera, a vertically integrated player, then that makes sense and, and the larger, the larger, the better is pretty much it. You know, you start looking okay. at anything less than a half million tons a year is probably going to be avoided because you can do better at a million tons yeah. plus. Now that's fine for that case where there's shipping options, like I said, Marine or whatever, that might actually reduce that size. If there's a pipeline, a gathering system outside your gate, then it could be quite a bit smaller. There's some really interesting technologies that are being developed that are small modular technologies in the tens of tons per day, up to a hundred ton per day, capture levels for very compact and, and efficient modular kind of pre-manufactured truck it in and deliver it to the plant kind of situations. 
that's great. If you've got a beverage plant next door that needs, that will pay you for CO2, super. If you've got something, you know, a pipeline nearby that you can dump the CO2 into, super. The, what do you do with it now question is, becomes the, the driver. I want to pick up on that because you just said something. So effectively the CO2, you can have a food grade CO2 from this. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So that's because, and there's a lot of chemical processes that require CO2 as an input. So yeah, we tend to forget that, don't we? Because we, there was recently a CO2 production shortage. And I can remember there was a shock horror headline that beer drinkers might have a problem in getting beer because there was a, a, a shortage yeah. of CO2. And I think it's one of those things, isn't it, that CO2 is seen as the bad guy, and yet we forget that it has other uses. Well, I yeah. want to go off. Well, Richard, you may or may remember this, or maybe I didn't bring this up, but we work in the greenhouse industry. It's a significant part. Mm-hmm. And they are dependent on CO2 for production purposes. Yeah. Yes, uh, and and so there's a massive market in southwestern Ontario that they now that they'll make their own CO2 or sometimes they'll buy it, and so I I don't know how far fetched it is, but you know is that a marketplace that could be used in the future? Anyhow, well, it, that happens in it happens in the Netherlands already. Yeah, um, it does. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I wanted to pick up from where John went, and that is, what is the current price tag, and I know I'm asking how long a piece of string is, by the way. And, and what, what is the associated timeline to actually implement projects? And I recognize, again, the size of the project and how big it is will add to this. But if you can give a range for our listeners so they get a sense of what this is. And and again, I will tell our listeners, I expect it might be it, the price was only going to come down. As you described, more and more people will use it. Technology will happen. But what is the current pricing and time frame if you could share with our listeners. So I was, I was at an event about a week ago and the discussion was, you know, and there's always a broad range because it really matters how much pretreatment do you have to do? How concentrated is the CO2, all of that stuff. So how many dollars per ton off of a bioethanol plant is a lot different from a natural gas combined cycle power plant. But the, the conversation is kind of in the $50 per ton range right now on good sites, you know, not, I'm not talking about the bioethanol plants, but, but on good industrial sites, $50 per ton, there's, there's companies that claim they can do a lot better. Maybe they can, and I don't know what the driving assumptions are always, but I think 50 is probably a number that's in the right range. For the capture side, it'll, you'll add, you have to add probably if you're really close to good geology and all of that, probably have to add another 10 to 15 tons or $15 per ton for the storage side of it. Now, has that dropped substantially from, and, and I, I said 2020 is when we actually had this, it may have been earlier, but it seems to me that pricing has dropped pretty significantly from the last time we spoke. Is that is that true or is it just to get my Yeah, head? no, no, it was, I think the pricing was in the kind of 80 to $120 range for, for quite a while. And it's, I think it's come down quite a bit since then, wow. but uh, yeah. It's nice to see prices dropping somewhere. <laughs> That's not the trend. Yeah. I did want to come back as far as what 
expected time frame. This is not a simple process. I think you indicated. How much time does it take to actually implement a system like this? Well, where? Yeah, I guess that's the big so question. How many years do you set aside for your permitting, regulation, and public engagement process? Yeah. Okay. You know, forget the technical side, the engineering, all of that. You've got years of permitting and regulation, regulatory approvals and public engagement to go on before you even start the rest of the process. So yeah, it's, it's really hard to put a number on it. Also, for example, in Alberta, we've built a, f a few of those plants. We've got a carbon trunk line in Alberta. We've got a couple of uh, capture plants. We've got uh, a number of injection fields and deep sequestration, enhanced oil recovery. The groundwork has been laid with the policy and regulatory folks. So they, they aren't going to be surprised by this stuff when it comes across their desks. Whereas if you were trying to do the first of a kind in Ontario or someplace, you might find that the, the policy and regulatory people are a little more caught flat footed and we'll have to go back and do a bunch of homework. And, and so it could take quite a bit longer. So I'm, I'm sorry to dodge the question, but no, no, I, there's I, just I, huge I, variability. I, I rightfully so. And I think it's important people. Well, understand. can we put a supplementary to that then? If you've got all the regulatory stuff in place, what would be the, the technical time scale? Well, again, size matters. Yeah. I would say probably for a, a small, a small plant in the hundred ton a day, uh, range hundred to a couple of hundred uh, ton a day range, you could probably get it done in five years. Yeah. Okay. That helps. That's interesting. Uh, yes. But yeah. larger, you know, you go to the million ton a day plants and, and you know, it, it all boils down to people. It's not the, te the technical is not the issue. The issue is for a corporation large enough to be able to fund a billion, a million ton a year plant. What are their internal decision-making processes to get it to a final investment decision required and getting through the bank bankers and the lawyers will dominate the process. Yeah. Jeez, that scares me right away there. Does this not speak to what you said, I think in, in our previous podcast that you, you need to get on with it now, because if you've got these kind of lead times and everything else, you know, it's only going to delay things further, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You might just have covered this, but just to put it in into a nice thing, could you could you perhaps just talk us through an example of a of a current CCS or CCUS project that's you know in place? No, there's a, there's a few of them. Don't breach any confidentiality or anything. But no, no, no. Well, I'll, I'll talk about existing built full scale plants. There's a few of them in Canada. There's uh, the Boundary Dam coal fired power plant where the, in Saskatchewan. So. That's over a million tons a year capture capacity. That's CO, uh, and they do all of the things that I talked about, the, the challenging flue gas cleanup before capture and then the capture side. And most of that CO2 is used for enhanced oil recovery and in, injected into oil fields. Happy to talk to you about the benefits of enhanced oil recovery and why it's not as evil as, uh, as people say. That's a good example. In Alberta, we've got the Shell Quest project, which is over a million tons a year capture off of a basically the hydrogen unit on a refinery at the Scottford refinery near Edmonton. There's also the Redwater upgrader refinery, which was designed from scratch as a capture 
facility. So the design on their hydrogen unit was specifically designed for CO2 capture rather than being bolted on the back end. They, along with the Agrium fertilizer plant, are the are the the core CO2 suppliers for the Alberta Carbon Trunk Line. So there's there's a few different cases there, and and the Alberta Carbon Trunk Line also runs down to where it, its main user is for enhanced oil recovery. I'm going to take a, a little detour to talk about enhanced oil recovery because people have an idea that enhanced oil recovery is a bad thing because it produce, results in production of oil, which results in more emissions. As it stands today, CO2 for enhanced oil recovery is an input cost for the oil field, for the producer. Therefore, they're motivated to minimize the amount of CO2 that gets injected and the oil that's produced when burnt as a fuel would result in more CO2 emissions than were injected. But if the incentives were set up so that the cost of CO2 was negative, the more CO2 you stored, you, the more revenue you generated, you can optimize that process so that actually you're injecting more CO2 than would be produced by burning the fuel that's produced by the plant. In some cases, you can actually do it as the oil is being produced, but at very least by after you stop producing in the field, continue to inject for a few years because you've already paid for all of the infrastructure and capital equipment. It's very minimal cost to continue to inject after, after production has stopped. So you can actually wind up with, and I know people don't like the concept, but it actually winds up being net negative emissions on the oil that's produced. It's just that right now, historically, the CO2 has been a cost rather than a benefit. It comes down to the money, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Before we end off this episode, I do kind of want to conceptualize what a ton of CO2 is. So just giving everyone a figure from online. A ton of wow. CO2 is the average emission of one passenger on a return flight from Paris to New York. It's also driving 6,000 kilometers with a diesel car or around 3,700 miles. If you're into electricity, it's about 4,300 kilowatt hours of power consumption. But again, that depends on your jurisdiction. So that gets a little bit messy. But for me, listening to one ton, I'm like, I have no idea how to think of it. The return flight from Paris to New York helps me conceptualize what a ton of CO2 is. So thought I'd throw that in there. I'm not going to comment on that. <laughs> oh, no, John. You probably, you probably shouldn't. You probably should. All right. So based on the information shared today on industry implementation of carbon capture, utilization, and storage, what is the biggest takeaway for our listeners? Well, I would say it's the same thing as we, uh, we talked about before. If you've got an opportunity to do it, do it. There is as much as... There may be some cost savings. The, the next generation might be a little bit more efficient. The tons of CO2 that are emitted between now and the next milestone mark in cost or whatever are going to be in the atmosphere for centuries. And the cost may not necessarily come down. Supply chains are going to get stretched as we build more and more of these plants out. And the length of time, the lead times on equipment and permitting and regulation and et cetera, are going to go up. So I think that there are real advantages to moving early. The technologies are not as risky as they were originally. We're no longer dealing with first-of-a-kind plants. The technology is proven. Let's just get out there and get them implemented. Richard, if I could follow up, if a industry leader is listening right now and they're interested in implementing carbon capture utilization and storage, what are some steps that they should take to do that? 
Well, there are some really good people out there to deal with both on the consulting side in terms of understanding what's required to do a, a high level assessment, preliminary assessment. You don't have to go to a vendor of, of CO2 capture equipment and cross your fingers and hope you get, got the straight goods. You could go to any one of a number of consultancies that that work in this space that can lay out not just high level numbers, but where the cost drivers are for your particular situation. There isn't a book you can look it up in because it's completely dependent on a particular case, the particular emission source, your location. And as I keep coming back to, what do you do with the CO2? If you've got an opportunity, if you can answer that, what do we do with the CO2 question quickly, then you're halfway home. Dave, John, anything to add? I'm just going to add one. It struck me when you've said a number of times, what are you going to do with the CO2? It's very similar to another technology, which is heat recovery. And a lot of people look at heat recovery and go, oh, we could recover heat from this. I've done projects where they've said, oh, we want to recover the heat from that. And then you say, and what are you going to use it for? And, you know, finding the use. And I think that, yeah, perhaps one of the takeaways for people is, do you have a potential use for CO2? If you do, perhaps you should start thinking about whether capturing it is something you could do. Do you or your neighbors? Yeah, fair point. Fair point. Yeah, yeah. because this is one of the things, this is a technology, it's like district heating, isn't it? You need a number of participants to really make it work well. Yeah, I, we didn't talk about it, but this concept of hubs and clusters, which the UK, yeah. by the way, is really leading in and doing a brilliant job yeah. on. This concept of hubs and clusters is going to be a really important one. So it's often not a single company decision, but yes. it, is there a cluster of companies together where jointly the economics make sense, where an individual play may not? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just uh, feed off that. And speaking with David Lazell, he, he echoed the whole idea of, you know, because we work in the cement industry, he goes, not only should you try to get the cement industry together, but you should get the cement and the steel industry in the same room mm -hmm. because effectively they both have to do yeah. some things there. And if you can have the yeah. aggregate of them involved, you can make good things happen. Uh, of course, people sometimes forget the thing about cement is even if you fueled the cement process with totally renewable fuel, you would still have CO2 emissions yeah. because of the process. Only about a third of the emissions are from the from the fuel. Yeah. yeah. So what did I pick up? Well, since the last time we spoke, certainly it seems like the economies, the pricing has dropped substantially. Mm -hmm. uh, sounds like technology is changing and improving. And, that, and again, I, I, I should know when the last time we spoke, Richard, but I don't think it was like maybe three years ago, maybe four. But it's, it's yeah. changed dramatically. And you also mentioned something. This is not just for heavy industries like the steel and the cement. There, there could be industries that could be motivated in the food industry yeah. that, that could be yeah. working in this capacity. Well, and, and in Europe, I mean, the, what drives things in, are different here than in Europe. But in Europe, waste to energy plants. They invested heavily in putting waste to energy plants in to get rid of landfills, which is great. Yeah. But now they've got all these emission sources. <laughs> and they're now big push to put capture on waste energy plants, but even suppliers to the car industry. So the, it's great. The car industry is moving towards selling electric vehicles, but they also want to be able to look at the upstream, their supply chain emissions. So if you're a supplier to the automotive sector, maybe it's worth more than the dollars per ton tax rate 
for you to put capture on your plants in order to be able to be an attractive vendor into the into the yeah. supply chain. So there's some of those factors. Are, things are getting a little more interesting on some of these other factors. Very much so. And like in Canada, when we're paying what we're paying per ton now, and it goes up fifteen dollars every year, it's makes it much more economical every year to do this. So, so the summary is, and uh, you've said it is, we need to get at it and let's not waste time because there's there's things that have to be done for the future that by waiting is not helping anyone. So thank you, Richard, for your time. I really appreciate it. Yes, thank you. Well, thank you. It was a great pleasure. That's all for today's episode of the 360 on Energy and Carbon podcast. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check us out on our website at 360energy.net and follow us on LinkedIn at 360 Energy Inc. Tune in to our podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, Anchor, or other listening platforms by searching the 360 on Energy and Carbon. You can watch the video recording and subscribe on YouTube at 360 Energy Inc. Email us your feedback at podcast at 360energy.net or comment on our LinkedIn posts. See you next week.